Well, good morning. As Jeff said, my name is Cameron Sparks. I'm the, the youth pastor here at Dallas Bible Church. It's a, a great joy and an honor and a privilege to be able to, to serve here as the youth pastor. Uh, let me open us up in a word of prayer, and we'll dive in. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for each person present here. We thank you for this space. Thank you for your many blessings. Lord, we pray that as we dive into your word, you would open up our hearts and our minds to receive it, to consider it even more deeply than we ever have before, to be transformed by it, to value your word for what it is as truth, as a guide to us, as an opportunity for us to know and understand the love that you have for us. Father, we pray that you would, through your word this morning, enable us to trust more deeply and who your son is and what he's done for us, and just what it means for us. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Well, we're doing a series on the life of Jesus in the church. This morning, we're going to be looking at a few stories, actually a couple of my favorite stories in all of the Bible, uh, stories about Jesus that are in Matthew chapter 22. And we're talking about trust. It's easy to trust someone when we like what they're saying. It's a lot harder to trust someone when we disagree with them. When I was a junior in high school, I got the opportunity to visit my brother who was doing a trip around the world, actually, for a year. He'd earned a grant to study music, and at this point he was in Uganda. And so I visited him there. I was there for almost two weeks and one of the things that we got to do, which was an incredible experience, we got to do what's called a gorilla trek. And so what you do, we've got a picture here. These were our guides. That's my brother and me. I don't know if you can tell which ones are us. <laughs> we're on the, the right side of the picture. Um, and you can see these guides. It's kind of hard to see. They each have AK-47s, which was exciting and a little bit terrifying. Those were for rogue gorillas, in case rogue gorillas showed up. Um, and this is probably the coolest picture that will ever be taken of me. I resigned to that fact. But it was a wonderful, wonderful experience. What they do is, one of the guides would go out, find where the, the gorillas were, radio back in their location, and then the rest of the guides would walk you there. And you'd go on a, on a it was about a two and a half hour trek into the gorilla territory, and then they'd just be all around you, and you'd spend about 30 minutes just interacting with them, not really interacting, but kind of just being in their presence, hoping they weren't going to rip your arms off or anything like that. But it was, it was wild and crazy and truly a, a once-in-a-lifetime experience. And right as we got among the gorillas, I mean, they're everywhere. They're in the trees. They're on the ground. And uh, it started raining. And I was like, this is some warm rain. I was like, oh, that's gorilla pee, actually, <laughs> which is an interesting experience. And uh, we were most excited to see the silverback gorilla. He's, he's the, the head honcho. They're massive, absolutely enormous, um, extremely powerful. So we were excited to see the silverback, and we were pretty bummed out because he was in literally like the tallest tree that he could have possibly found as far from us as possible. And he really didn't move at all the entire time we were there. So I have a picture of him. This was him. 
Um, I, I don't, still don't understand how these branches are even supporting him. I think I have another picture that's a little further back. That's super zoomed in, but we're talking, I mean, you know, 60, 70 feet way up high in the air. And so it was a little bit of a bummer for us. And one thing that our, our guides had told us as we're doing this is, is don't look the gorillas in the eye if you can help it, because sometimes they take that as a challenge. And so, of course, like, right as you get in there, like, you're very cognizant of where they all are, and you're being very respectful. But, but as we kind of got more bummed and more bummed, we're sort of looking at, okay, well, how can we salvage this experience? And there was a gorilla sort of laying off um, to the side, kind of a small one. And so I, I told my brother, you know, snap a picture of me. Let's try to get me in the frame with this gorilla. And so, you know, I'm, I'm working my way into the frame. My brother's looking at me. I'm looking at this gorilla kind of looking back at him and trying to get into frame. I think we have a picture of, of this happening, a blurry picture. Um, my brother starts to realize already that, that something's not quite right. Because as I look back, one of the times that I look back at this gorilla, I look him dead in the eyes, completely on accident. And immediately this gorilla snaps up puts its front arms into the dirt with like a thud that I still hear in my brain. And I immediately turned to our guide who was just like, stay still, look down. And so I'm looking back at this thing. It proceeds to start beating on its chest, right? Which was a wild sound, like a drum, just reminding me how much meat, how much muscle is really in those pecs, right? And all I can remember thinking was like, oh, that gorilla's a lot bigger than I thought he was laying there, right? And so I'm looking at the guide again, and the guide is actually smiling at this point. And I, I don't understand what's going on. Like, I'm about ready to take his AK from him, right? I'm expecting him to snap into action, take this thing down for me. And instead, he's just kind of like being super chill and easy about it. So against every fiber in my being, I just continue to look down as this thing sort of glares at me. And then it in like the blink of an eye, rushes at me, and right as it gets to me, brushes past me, and I still remember the feeling of its coarse, thick hair on my arm as it just brushed right by me with my brother as my witness, right? It was terrifying. But thankfully, I trusted the guide. He turns to me afterwards, and he just says, you know, he just wanted you to know he is a tough gorilla. I'm like... I believe it. I believe it, right? So everything in me was screaming to turn and run. I put my trust in my guide even over and against what my gut, what my instinct was telling me. Because we are not God, because we are sinners, our natural instinct is going to be to trust in our own knowledge and in our own wisdom and not God's. When we trust in Jesus Christ, we receive eternal life. It's the promise of the gospel. We receive salvation from our sins. The Holy Spirit enters us. He transforms us. We are made new. But things like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control... Those kinds of things don't just pop up in us immediately overnight. That transformation happens in us as we learn to trust more and more in Christ and less and less in ourselves. And that's our subject this morning. How do we trust more in Jesus and less in ourselves? 
And today we get to peek through the blinds of history and watch Jesus interact with the people around him. Powerful people who know what Jesus is teaching and what he's doing and who don't like it and who have done their best to think up ways to challenge him. There's three things of Jesus that I want to focus on that we see in these stories. His wisdom, his word, and his pedigree that these people reject and that we must rely on to build trust in him over and against ourselves. First thing we're going to focus on is his wisdom. Look with me at verses 15. I'm going to start with verses 15 through 19. It says this. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion." For you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. So if we pause here, already we're seeing Jesus' wisdom because he is completely aware of what they're doing. He's completely aware that they're testing him and even more incredibly, the text says that he's aware of their malice. So in other words, Jesus knows something that no one else could know. He knows what's going on in their heart. This tax that the Pharisees are referring to is called the poll tax. It's a tax that is required of all Roman citizens. It is a tax strongly disliked by the Jews. So if Jesus responds, he has basically two options. If he responds, yes, you should pay the tax, then he alienates his people, the Jews. Right? The Jews are already considering him a prophet. Some are considering him the Messiah, the chosen one of God. What they would expect of the chosen one of God would be for him to preach for allegiance to God above Caesar. But if Jesus does that and he says, no, you shouldn't pay the tax, then he can be accused of treason by the Pharisees. So it's a lose-lose situation for Jesus, or so the Pharisees think. How does he respond? Let's keep reading. Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. And then he said to them, therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard it, they marveled and they left him and went away. So his solution is to focus on the likeness and the inscription on the coin. And then to say, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And the Pharisees and any Jew that's in the audience for this is going to know that every single human being 
has been made in the likeness of God. That is the climax of Genesis chapter 1. Right? The idea that God has made man in his image. He creates man in his image. Furthermore, they're going to know that God has inscribed his law on their minds and on their hearts. As several passages throughout the Old Testament tell them. So we know that God has written his law not only on the hearts of Jews, but also Gentiles. He's written his law on all hearts, as Paul makes clear in Romans 2.15. We know that today. And what Jesus does is he avoids committing treason while in the very same breath doing the very thing that they expected him to do that they thought would get him into trouble. He preaches that human beings owe their ultimate allegiance not to Caesar, but to God. Only he does it so masterfully, he roots it so deeply in their scriptures that it is too subtle to get him into any trouble. But make no mistake that every Jew there knows that what he is really saying is, look, this coin, sure, it may have Caesar's likeness. It may have Caesar's inscription, and it may belong to Caesar, but every human being has God's likeness, has God's inscription, and every human being belongs to God. In other words, what he's saying is human beings should be giving not just money, but all of themselves to God. All of you, all that you are, belongs to God. And all they can do in response is just marvel. What incredible wisdom he shows. Can we just appreciate how awesome he is here in this exchange? And he gives us here a key to relying on his wisdom that we're focusing on this morning. Relying on Jesus' wisdom and not our own means we render all things unto God. We render all of ourselves to God. In other words, we give him our futures our loved ones, our plans, all of our lives, we give over to him. And that can be very hard to do, especially when things happen that we don't like or things happen that don't make sense to us. We see this even with the disciples, right? The disciples are right here with Jesus, seeing all this go on. They're seeing his miracles. They're, they're starting to believe in him as the Messiah. And yet just a few chapters later, when Jesus goes to his death, they don't understand it. It makes no sense to them. And they flee. They go into hiding. They lose all hope. And then they come to find that his death, which they thought was really the worst thing that could possibly happen for them as his disciples, is actually the best thing that could ever happen, not only for them, but for the whole world. Relying more on Christ's wisdom and less on our own means letting go of our own ideas of what is good for us and for our loved ones. Believing God's promise that he is working all things for our eternal good. If we can learn anything from the disciples, it's that this is it's especially important when it is especially hard to do. And when we mix this up, when we rely on our own wisdom instead of his, it leads to thoughts like God shouldn't have 
X, right? When we are thinking, anytime we're thinking about what God should or shouldn't be doing, we're placing our wisdom above his. When we get angry with him or we doubt his goodness over something that he has allowed to happen, what we're really saying in our hearts is, this is wrong. I am right. You were wrong. I know better than you. Relying on his wisdom means being okay with not understanding. It's okay to not have answers all the time. Spoiler alert, we won't have all the answers. That's what it means to not be God. God is God. We aren't always going to understand what God is doing or we would be him. Another thought that we can think if we're relying on our own wisdom is I need God, sure, but I also need why. If you're giving God most of your life, but you're keeping some small pocket to yourself, you're trusting in your wisdom and not his. A lot of times we don't realize that we're thinking this way until something goes wrong, until we lose that thing. We give him control over lots of things, perhaps. Maybe almost all of our life, as long as we have financial security or a certain zip code or a spouse or a child or another child or this promotion or this activity or maybe even a sin that we know he doesn't want for us. To rely on Jesus' wisdom means letting him rule every part of our life, wanting him to rule every part of our life, especially the parts we cling to most tightly. The good news this morning is that we can ask him. We can ask him to rule every part, and we should be asking him. So ask yourself this morning, what in my life right now is hardest for me to render to God? Every day there will be an answer to that question. But every day we can die to our own wisdom and it begins with getting his wisdom into our brain. Like we're doing right now, reading this story, considering what Jesus is teaching. Right? This has to be a part of every day of our life. Trusting in Jesus and not ourselves means relying on his word and not our own. So the Sadducees come next with their challenge of Jesus. And the Sadducees don't believe in life after death. Okay, so, so they've been heavily influenced by Greek philosophy. And they've decided that resurrection from the dead does not happen. And so what they do here is they pick and choose from the law in order to create this convoluted marriage scenario for Jesus that they think is going to confirm this preconceived belief that they have that resurrection from the dead doesn't happen. So imagine being so caught up in the law that you think you can deny life after death because there's too much red tape involved. That's what the Sadducees are doing here. So read with me verses 29 through 33. 
in the interest of time, we're just going to read Jesus' response to them. It says, Jesus answered them, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, people neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. So Jesus responds by quoting a tremendously important passage to the Sadducees and to all Jews. He quotes from Exodus chapter 3, where God is revealing himself to Moses in the burning bush. And he says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Jesus says, God is not just the God of the dead, but of the living. In other words, look at what he's saying here. He's not saying, I was their God. He's saying, I am their God. Right now, God is reigning over these men in heaven. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying that God is being their God right now, even as God is talking to Moses, even as we're having this conversation, Sadducees, these men are alive and God is reigning over them long after their bodies have died. And their response to this, understandably, is astonishment. Right? Because think about what's happening here. Jesus is not just interpreting scripture, but he's actually speaking new revelation that has not yet been understood. Okay, so, for example, he tells them there is no marriage in heaven. He says, we will be like the angels. In other words, Jesus knows what only God could know. Imagine being there for that. As someone who studied the Old Testament your whole life, right? Imagine if this morning I was like, by the way, when you get to heaven, you will be able to fly. It'd be pretty cool, right? That'd be pretty crazy. That's literally what the Sadducees are experiencing. Only he's, Jesus is not just saying this. He's rooting it in scripture that they believe and that they cannot deny. It says they are astonished, right? Before this, they marvel. It's important to realize in these responses that they have that astonishment and marvel is not enough. Jesus is not after your astonishment. He's not after your marvel. He is after your trust. To trust in him, we must know him better every day. So relying on his word means knowing his word better every day. And this text is just one tiny example of the way Jesus, and then later through his spirit, the apostles and the New Testament writers add to revelation about God. That's what the New Testament is. That's what New Testament is. It's new revelation. It's new testimony about God that we get to enjoy and read and study. So imagine for a minute that you decide to date somebody, okay? And you tell this person that you're going to date, uh, listen, you're not allowed to talk to me, okay? I'm going to tell you things I want. I'm going to tell you things I need. I'm going to tell you things that I might need help with, but 
I don't want you boring me with the history of your life, with the things that you're interested in, with your likes and your dislikes and what it is that you're trying to do, what it is that you're doing, what it is that you're about. I don't want any of that. I just want you to help me out. That's a relationship that's probably not going to last very long, right? That's what we're doing when we aren't reading God's word and we're praying to him. We're wondering why we're not hearing from him. There's thousands of stories of God in his word that show us who he is, show us his likes and his dislikes, show us what he's done and what he's doing and what he wants to do in our lives. Being in a relationship with him means hearing from him in his word. It means wanting to know more about him every day. But remember, the Pharisees and the Sadducees knew a lot about God too. And they had a very high regard for these stories in the Old Testament as well. So it's not just about knowing his word. Relying on Jesus' word means being in love with the gospel. And this is what the Pharisees and the Sadducees missed. Right? Not the gospels, but the gospel. What Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are talking about. What they're bearing witness to. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus what he came to do and teach. That is the gospel. It is the centerpiece of the whole entire Bible. It is what it is all about. The Old Testament looks forward to it, prophesies about it, sets the stage for his coming. The New Testament looks back at what he's done and tells us what life looks like now in light of it. So whatever story you want to pick in the Bible, Abraham, Moses, Joseph, the destruction of the Amalekites, the flood, the garden, the feeding of the 5,000, the upper room, what the Holy Spirit does there, whatever story you want to pick, the gospel is a lens for us that we look through to help us understand that story. It is an interpreter, not just for every book of the Bible, but for all of life. We tell our youth this all the time. We never put the gospel down. We never graduate from the gospel. It becomes our worldview that we see everything else through in our life. So relying on his word and not our own means majoring on the gospel and minoring on everything else. These religious elite that are around Jesus in this text, they've made their lives about showing everyone else around them where and when and how and why they're wrong. As the church, we must seek to find common ground first with one another, common ground in the gospel. We establish that common ground over and against all other disagreements. And one thing I love about this church is that Aaron is awesome at this. He does an awesome job of this. And that's why we've partnered with so many different churches and organizations that may think differently than us on a lot of issues. But we're working with them, like we did through Revive Texas, for example. 
And when it comes to those minors, think most critically of your own perspective. That means being aware of the potential errors that might be in your own view. That means being able to accept that there are other views that are different than your own and that your view is just that. It's one view of many. It means being able to extend grace to those who think differently. When we mix this up and we rely on our own word instead of his, leads us to think things like, the issues I care about are the issues that matter most to God. This thinking is why the Pharisees reject their own Messiah, right? The law is their Lord. It's all that they ultimately care about. And soon they're fighting against their own God while thinking they're doing what he wants them to be doing. So this is one that we're especially susceptible to in the church. It can be about good things. It can be about, like it was for the Pharisees, the law of God. It could be about missions. It could be about church life or church order. It could be about doctrine, worship. We take what we enjoy or what we're passionate about and we make it ultimate. Then we have chosen the wrong Lord. Don't allow your passion or your issue to become more important than the gospel. I have a friend who stopped believing in Christianity because he hated that there were people who would never hear the gospel just because of where they grew up. He met wonderful people while he was traveling who were doing everything in their power to be good people in the world. And they helped him. They were kind to him. And he couldn't see why their way of life was any worse or different. He hated that his beliefs excluded them from heaven. And so he gave up on his beliefs. Now, as we learned last week from Zane's message, the church historically has been exclusive, which is not good. Having an issue with exclusivity is a great issue to have. But be the change that you want to see in the church. Right? If you're majoring on the gospel, then you recognize the gospel is for everybody, every race, every nation. Any person on earth can place their faith in the gospel. The Holy Spirit is not limited to one zip code. Growing up in the Bible Belt does not make you a Christian. Be the bridge to the people that you want to see included. Share the gospel with them. Another thought that we might have if we're putting our word above his word is if you're challenging me, you're challenging God. And one of my favorite Tim Keller quotes, he says, if God never disagrees with you, your God is yourself. If we're always right, then there's a problem. Be careful being certain. The Sadducees are guilty of this. They believed their knowledge of God was perfect. They had their minds made up. So they accepted only things that supported their worldview. They rejected anything that didn't, which led to them 
completely missing Jesus. The things we feel most sure of, we must be most careful about, or we risk making the same mistakes that they make. Two of the smartest seminary professors that I've had while I've been in seminary had rapid, very, very different approaches. Right? So when you're in a seminary class, you're typically studying a lot of old, dead theologians. And one of these, and th- th- these men were brilliant, far smarter than I'll ever be, right? Just an incredible wealth of knowledge that they could pull from. You know, you'd ask a question and they could go on forever. So I wouldn't say one was smarter than the other, but, but one of them would just absolutely lambast theologians that thought differently than him. He would even bring up their personal lives in some instances and talk about how this is a result of this theology. You see, they started doing this thing because their theology was bad, right? Versus this other seminary professor who was incredibly gracious toward the people he taught us about that thought differently than he did. So much so that I would actually come away after him talking about someone that he disagreed with and why he disagreed with, I would come away with more respect for that theologian, the work he had done after hearing my professor talk about him. He was actually harshest on the theologians that he thought the most like. He would talk about where their potential holes were in their thinking. He would talk about what they might need to work on course, really talking about himself, right? His class was more interesting, more engaging, and more impactful. Relying on Jesus's word and not our own means we are not the arbiter of truth. It means we will always have more to learn. We will never exhaust the knowledge of God. Finally, and Perhaps most importantly, how do we trust in Jesus and not ourselves? We rely on the pedigree of Jesus, not our own pedigree. Pedigree is kind of a strange word. We don't use that too often. Um, I have a, a pure breed Siberian Husky. And so I have papers on him that I got when I bought him that say who his parents are, that say that he is a pure Husky, that I can look to, I know how he's going to act. I know how he's going to behave. I know how he's going to look, right? I know that he is a husky because I have his pedigree. So let's read this last story and consider the pedigree of Jesus. This is in verses 41 through 46. It says, Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. And he said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord? Saying, and now he quotes David from Psalm 110. This is David speaking. And David says, the Lord, God, said to my Lord, the Christ, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Jesus says, if David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. So Jesus asks the question this time. He asks, whose son is the Christ? What he's talking about with the Christ is 
the anointed one, the coming king, right? The one who would be christened with oil, the one who is the Messiah. And he says, whose son is the Christ supposed to be? And they say, David, right? But that can't be right. The Pharisees answer wrong because David would never refer to his own son as his Lord, which Jesus shows him doing in Psalm 110, referring to this Christ as his Lord. But at the same time, these Jews know that the Christ is going to come from the line of David because God himself promises that to David. God himself says that's the case. So why then is David calling his son Lord? They can't make sense of all this because they don't know what Jesus knows. Only Jesus knows whose son the Christ is because Jesus is the Christ. And then comes maybe my favorite part in all this text. No one is able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. So his challengers are finally silent. And the truth that we know is that Jesus is not just the answer to the question, who is the Christ? He is the answer to all the promises of God in the Old Testament to his people. Going all the way back to the garden and Genesis chapter 3, Jesus is the second Adam who succeeds where Adam failed. He is the offspring of Eve who will crush the head of the serpent. He is the promised seed of Abraham through whom God blesses all nations. He is the shepherd who leads God's people through the valley of death. And he's the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's not just the son of David. He is the son of God. That is why even King David calls him Lord. How amazing, a thousand years before Jesus is on the scene, David in the Holy Spirit understands that this coming king is bigger than him. He's more than human. He's Lord. What a pedigree he has. He's the forever king who will rule the world in perfect righteousness. And how about your pedigree this morning? My pedigree. I'm willing to go out on a limb and say that none of us here have died and raised from the dead. Right? We hear this from Paul, perhaps most powerfully, who has a very impressive Jewish pedigree and runs through it and says, this is meaningless. This is nothing. He says, all are dead in our sins before Christ intervenes. A dead man can do nothing, right? A dead man brings nothing to the table. Our pedigree is sin and death. Relying on the pedigree of Jesus means first, embracing our own complete and total failure. Jesus has done what we never could. We are valuable and worthy and holy 
only in him and because of what he has done. Next, relying on the pedigree of Jesus means letting go completely of our own pedigree. We don't think too highly of ourselves. We don't think too lowly of ourselves. We let go completely of ourselves. We're not thinking about ourselves. We're letting go of the scoreboard in our head of how many good deeds we've done or the sin that we just committed. That's what it means. That's part of what it means to die to the old self and come alive as a new creation in Christ. You don't realize how empty your own wisdom and your own words and your own pedigree are until you go through something that you just don't have any answers for. I have the best mom that's ever been and ever will be. I'm sure lots of people say that about their mom, but they're all wrong. Um, I spoke about her last time I preached about what's going on, and it's hard not to just because it's on my heart and because I've never had to trust in Jesus like I am now. But right now my mom has stage four brain cancer, glioblastoma. And it's obviously very, very hard. And I don't understand why. And it's very scary thinking about what could happen, what she might go through the Lord says you don't have to worry about what might happen you don't even know what tomorrow holds the thought of what could happen comes from here comes from my own wisdom my own wisdom leads to fear and worry, and anxiety. The wisdom of Christ leads to peace. Even right here, he reassures me, in this text, my mom doesn't belong to me. She doesn't even belong to herself. She belongs to the God who made her, and who loves her, who came into the world, and died for her. Everything good that I enjoy about her, every interaction that we've ever had together and ever will have together comes from him. So as a family, we're fighting to trust Jesus completely through this. And the best news is that she trusts him, that my dad trusts him. And so together we can look to his pedigree. We can look to these verses to stories like these in the Old Testament and the New Testament, and we can find hope in each of them in light of the gospel. She's been going through this for almost a year now, through two brain surgeries, through chemo and radiation. Through all of it, she's been a shining light. She's been brave and strong and caring and loving and joyful one of the things that she did just minutes after waking up after her first brain surgery was to worry about my older brother because she thought it was cold in her hospital room and he didn't have a jacket on. I can only describe that the way she's 
been through all of this is supernatural. She has been the way that she's been because her trust is in Christ. Each day that goes by, each doctor visit, we're choosing to trust Jesus. Because there's nowhere else to turn to. There is no doctor who offers hope that far outlasts our earthly bodies. Hope in eternity together with one another. So you can trust in Jesus or you can trust in yourself. It can't be both. One trust only lessens as the other trust grows. So which one are you feeding? 